So when you get a prescription drug at the pharmacy, it comes in a box or a bottle. And maybe you've noticed that you also get this little package insert that comes with it. Often it's this very long folded up piece of paper in very small print with a lot of medical and scientific jargon in it, information about clinical studies, dosing, side effects. Maybe you've tried to read one of these in a prescription you've gotten. Maybe you've given up. They're pretty dense. In the pharmaceutical world, this package insert is referred to as the label. Not to be confused with that little sticker on the bottle that you or I might call the label, but this jargony package insert. And I'm holding in my hands one of these package inserts, one of these labels. It's one you can't find at a pharmacy anymore. The label I'm looking at right now is the original label from 1995 for OxyContin. You know, the painkiller. It's produced by Purdue Pharma. OxyContin was approved by government regulators at the Food and Drug Administration in 1995. And part of that approval process involved approving the words on this label. The label's really long, 21 pages, but on page 15, under the drug abuse and dependence section, there's this one sentence. Delayed absorption, as provided by Oxycontin tablets, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. It's a mouthful, so I'll read it to you again. Delayed absorption, as provided by OxyContin tablets, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. Remember that sentence. It arguably helped open the floodgates to the opioid epidemic. In plain English, here's what that sentence is saying. That first part about delayed absorption, that just means your body doesn't absorb OxyContin all at once. In fact, that's what the content in OxyContin refers to, continuous. There's a time-release mechanism in the pills that doles out the active ingredient, oxycodone, continuously over many hours. So that's the first part of the sentence. And then the sentence goes on to say that because of this delayed absorption, it is believed— believed by whom, the sentence doesn't say, but it is believed that people will be less likely to abuse OxyContin, to take it to get high rather than treat pain. The problem is that sentence turned out to be highly misleading. OxyContin turned out to be highly abusable. And the aftershocks of that sentence, we're still feeling them today. Our question was, how did government regulators let that sentence slip into the label? Who wrote it and why? We've all heard the heartbreaking stories of abuse and addiction. The number of deaths from opioid abuse continues to climb. This epidemic is a national health emergency. The doctor's death is a grim reminder of a nation addicted to opioids. It's just devastating for these babies. America's worst drug crisis ever. We have a 9-11 scale loss every three weeks. More than 300,000 people have died from opioid overdoses since 1999. Another 2 million are addicted. In 2015 alone, the economic cost of the opioid crisis was more than $500 billion, according to the White House Council of Economic Advisors. So these are things we've heard. But here's something you may not have heard. Some of the opioid epidemic's roots lie in paperwork. Boring paperwork, like this 21-page label for OxyContin. We spent eight months digging through the regulatory paperwork that brought OxyContin to market. We filed countless requests with federal agencies to get access to hard-to-find documents. We reviewed hundreds of pages of court records and obtained one court order. We dug up stuff that has never been made public, as far as we can tell. Some of the information has, for the last 13 years, been sitting in an envelope marked sealed in a West Virginia county courthouse. And together, all these documents help explain how we got to this point of national crisis. There were a lot of factors at play. 
But you could argue a lot of it traces back to the power of a single sentence and the power of a pharmaceutical company to shape regulations. Welcome back to The Uncertain Hour, where the things we fight the most about are the things we know the least about. I'm Chrissy Clark, senior correspondent for Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty team. This is a show that digs into the deepest uncertainties of our lives and our economy to try to make sense of making it in America, how people get ahead, how they get left behind. And this season, we're looking at how federal regulations play into those questions. Because federal regulations and how strong they should be are a major source of debate right now in our nation's highest corridors of power. It's a debate that doesn't get all that much attention. Regulations can seem wonky and technical. And yet, they shape every moment of our lives, from mundane things like peanut butter to deadly serious things like the opioid crisis. And that's the subject of this episode. Just a quick note, you're going to hear some swear words over the next hour. Our producer, Caitlin Esch, joins me for this episode. She reported the story we're bringing you about the power and peril built in to this one regulatory sentence on the OxyContin label and how it helped spark the opioid epidemic. Hey, Caitlin. Hey, Chrissy. And I know the journey you're about to take us on stops in some interesting and unexpected places, including a parking lot with a mysterious black car, a courthouse in Appalachia, and somehow the Emerald City in the land of Oz. But we should probably start with some basics about the opioid epidemic. Right. If you're talking about the opioid epidemic, you've really got to talk about OxyContin and the company that makes it, Purdue Pharma. It's a private, family-owned business. It's owned by the Sackler family. They bought it 65 years ago, and it's based in Stamford, Connecticut. Now, Purdue is kind of notorious for its aggressive marketing campaign. Some have blamed it for helping launch the opioid epidemic. And that's in part because Purdue is really one of the first drug companies to aggressively market strong opioids, specifically OxyContin, for chronic non-cancer pain, which is a huge market. That's anything from arthritis to low back pain. Because before the 1990s, you had to be really, really sick, like cancer sick or in severe pain to get a prescription for strong opioids. Yeah, there was a lot of fear about the addictiveness of opioids dating back to our country's first opioid epidemic in the 1800s after the Civil War. So for much of the 20th century, there was this really careful balancing act between easing pain and creating a bunch of addicts. But by the 90s, that was changing. There was this whole movement to treat pain as a fifth vital sign, to take pain more seriously. And so opioids were starting to lose their stigma. We should say, over the years, a lot of journalists have investigated Purdue, The New Yorker, Esquire magazine, The Los Angeles Times. But what we really wanted to focus on was the way Purdue worked with government regulators to bring OxyContin to market in the mid-1990s. And specifically, that sentence that government regulators approved that I read you before, that sentence on the label that said, Delayed absorption, as provided by OxyContin tablets, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. It's just one short sentence in the middle of hundreds of other sentences, but it had a big impact on how the drug was marketed and ultimately how it was prescribed. And the question of how that sentence got into the label took us all over the country, starting in the mountains of rural Virginia, which is where Caitlin went to find out how the opioid epidemic played out in one community in the late 1990s. Lee County is in the southernmost tip of Virginia, wedged between Kentucky and Tennessee. Just 25,000 people live there, one in four below the poverty line. By 2000, the rate of OxyContin distribution in Lee County was more than six times the national average. As early as 1997, just a year after OxyContin hit the market, a handful of people started noticing changes. A nun. It just blew through the county. I mean, it was like a whirlwind coming through. A pharmacist. It almost was like a perfect storm. And a small-town doctor. And we started seeing all these people that were opioid-addicted over OxyContin. The nun is Sister Beth Davies, 84 years old. She's originally from Staten Island, you can tell by her accent. 
But Sister Beth has worked in Southwest Virginia for the last 45 years. She's an addiction counselor. People were coming in desperate. And I, I said, well, what happened? Well, I'm taking OCs. I'm taking, well, I didn't know what OCs were because I'd never heard of the drug. And I called the local pharmacist and I said, Greg, what is this new drug? We're having so many people walk in and they can't get off it. It has been 20 years and Sister Beth still remembers what the pharmacist said to her that day. And he said, Beth, this is going to be the worst thing that ever, ever happened in Lee County. This drug, they're marketing it as though it were non-addicting. And he says it's one of the most addicting drugs we've ever going to see on the market. He knew that right away. Greg Stewart has been the town pharmacist since 1985, and he'd never seen anything this strange. Patients coming in from out of state. Asking for early refills. Uh, patients who say they the dog ate their medication, dropped it in the toilet. And I know we know that occasionally happens. Dropped it in the sink. The pharmacist and the nun talked with a local doctor, Art Van Zee. And then Dr. Van Zee was noticing people who came into his clinic. He had them as babies. And here they were in their teens, and they, they were dying. I got called in to see uh, a young woman who'd overdosed on OxyContin and was on a respirator. It took Dr. Van Zee a minute, and then he recognized her. He'd given her baby shots, knew her parents. She'd been done well in high school and was a cheerleader and active in a lot of extracurricular stuff. And then, you know, I'd become addicted to OxyContin. The town these three had known seemed to change overnight. I think FDA failed. I think pharmacy, to a degree, failed. The physicians failed. The FDA failed, Greg Stewart and Sister Beth thought, because they were allowing OxyContin to be marketed in a way that understated the risks of abuse and addiction. Part of the FDA's job has always been to figure out the right balance between getting drugs to people who need them and protecting the public from the risks that come along with those drugs. And they do that by deciding what drugs should be approved and then regulating how they're marketed. And we were trying to get in touch with the regulators to say you've got to do something about this because that's your job. They were very slow in coming up with anything that was really going to regulate it. That's where the regulators failed us. You know, where were they? It was obvious what was happening and they weren't there. Where were the regulators in the early days of the opioid epidemic in the 1990s? Well, one of the things they were doing was negotiating with Purdue over sentences in that label, that package insert. Sentences like the ones we told you about on the 15th page of the original OxyContin label. Delayed absorption, as provided by OxyContin tablets, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. But before we get back to that sentence, you need to know about the importance of the label and some of the other sentences in that label, that package insert. It's one of the most powerful regulatory tools that the FDA has over the pharmaceutical industry. Dan Spiker is a former FDA medical officer. He actually helped write package inserts for drugs and devices back in the 90s, though he did not work on OxyContin. There's nothing ever fought over, struggled over, uh, agreed on eventually, or in a sense disagreed on as much as the package insert, and in particular the indication statement. That would be the most, the most precious turf known to man. That indication statement, that precious turf, is the part of the label that spells out who the drug is for. OxyContin's original indication was for the management of moderate to severe pain, which is pretty broad. Before 1995, prescribing painkillers as strong as OxyContin for anything other than severe pain or cancer pain was still controversial. But the broader the indication statement, the bigger the market, more money for the drug company. And while the drug company has a lot of say in the package insert, or the PI, the FDA makes the ultimate decision. The FDA can have any package insert they want. No matter what the sponsor says, they can say, okay, we're approving it, here's the PI, period. But as you can imagine, we have respect and responsibility for the developers as well. So we always, uh, always worked hard with the sponsor to give them <laughs> the illusion of participation. I should mention, after the FDA, Dan Spiker went on to work for Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin. That package insert Dan was talking about, OxyContins was approved by the FDA in 1995. And it had that sentence we told you about at the beginning of the episode. 
Delayed absorption, as provided by Oxycontin tablets, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. It's like both simple and complicated. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, it's a pretty short sentence, right? I mean, listen, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Dr. Nine, Caleb nine, Alexander nine, is going to help us unpack 15, that. 15 or 16. 17 word sentence. He's an epidemiology and medicine professor at Johns Hopkins University and the chairman of an FDA advisory committee on drug safety for neurologic diseases. He knows a lot about regulations and about prescription painkillers. We asked him to help make sense of that sentence. What catches Dr. Alexander's ear is that word believed. There's a caveat here. The sentence says it's believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. So they're not stating that it does reduce the abuse liability of a drug, but, but this is a slippery slope. OxyContin was the only opioid that had a sentence like this in its label, a sentence that suggested it was less abusable than other opioids based on a belief. So this is a pretty unusual sentence. And officials at Purdue later testified when the sentence was written, Purdue had not done any clinical studies to test OxyContin's abuse potential, studies that would have backed that sentence up. I'll just read a little bit from a sworn deposition from 2003 that we obtained, where a Purdue official is being questioned about the research they did on OxyContin before it came to market. Question. Do you recall any abuse potential studies for OxyContin in that time frame? Answer. No. Question. What about after that time frame? Answer. No. Here's pain expert Dr. Nathaniel Katz. He's the president of Analgesic Solutions, a research and consulting firm. So there was an egregiously wrong statement in the original package insert that was marketed extensively, not based on any research. That statement was left in there for five years before it was eventually taken out. And then it was later retracted. You can't find that package. Good, good luck finding that package insert somewhere on the internet. You can't find it. The original package insert is a public document, though you have to submit a special request to the government to see it, a process that can take months. I know because I did it. That's the document that Chrissy was reading from at the start of the episode. So Purdue hadn't done any clinical research to back up that one sentence. There were other sentences in the label that were based on research, only the research didn't back up the claims. Like a sentence that said addiction was very rare when opioids are taken under a doctor's care. Citations in one of the draft labels include a study that looked at about 10,000 burn victims treated with opioids. The study didn't specifically focus on patient addiction, and it didn't find any cases of it. It also didn't use OxyContin, since OxyContin wasn't on the market yet. And patients were treated in a hospital setting where drugs are administered by doctors and nurses. And it didn't come close to replicating the experience of chronic pain patients who can take OxyContin at home, sometimes for years. Purdue also cited a one-paragraph letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. The letter described a review of medical records of hospital patients who were given immediate-release opioids, not OxyContin. One of the authors of that letter, Dr. Herschel Jick, has since said he's mortified his letter was used by drug companies to make broad claims about addiction. I asked Dr. Caleb Alexander from Johns Hopkins, was that sentence about belief and abuse liability? Was it a mistake? Should the FDA have allowed it into the final label? Not without data. I mean, show me the data. Show me the studies. Show me the abuse liability studies. But as we said, Purdue didn't do any of those abuse studies. And in reality, even if OxyContin's delayed absorption mechanism made it less abusable, you could easily get around that because you could crush OxyContin and snort it or inject it. So the whole dose of the drug would enter your system at once. And OxyContin is incredibly strong. As pain expert Dr. Nathaniel Katz points out, for a time, OxyContin pills had up to 160 milligrams of the active ingredient oxycodone. By comparison, Percocet only goes up to 10 milligrams of oxycodone. So imagine you've got one little pill that can be crushed, that can be injected, and that's got basically the equivalent of 16 of the Percocet tablets. Now, all of a sudden, you've got a problem. Because of the high strength of OxyContin and its crushability, it wasn't less attractive to those who would abuse it. It was more so, contrary to the suggestion of that one sentence. Let's hear it again. Delayed absorption, as provided by OxyContin tablets, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. Here's Dr. Caleb Alexander. 
it's certainly the case that this sentence ju didn't just land in the package insert by accident, but it's there for a reason. And I think it's a, it's a good question to be asking how, how it came to be that that sentence ended up in the package insert. And as importantly, what effect did that have on the way that OxyContin was ultimately marketed and used? Purdue relied on that sentence in their own marketing materials. See, a label doesn't just give medical information. Dan Spiker, the former FDA officer, says it's also important for advertising reasons during the product's launch. The cliche that we bounced back and forth was, if it ain't in the label, it ain't in the launch. In other words, it's got to be in the label. As we've said, before the 90s, strong narcotics were mainly used for severe pain or cancer pain. And in the 90s, that was starting to change. Purdue saw an opportunity to expand the market for OxyContin, to include cancer patients, sure, but also people with chronic pain, people with arthritis or back pain. And if Purdue could figure out how to convince doctors to prescribe to those patients, the company would stand to make a lot of money. Again, Dr. Caleb Alexander. They didn't want to get put in the cancer bucket, if you will. They didn't want people to associate the product just with cancer. And what have we seen over the past 20 years? The vast majority of uh, injuries and deaths from prescription opioids have occurred among people that don't have cancer, that have chronic non-cancer pain. Paul Hanley is the chairman of the Complex Litigation Group with Simmons Hanley Conroy. He's been suing the prescription drug industry since 2003. His firm is currently involved in about 100 lawsuits against drug companies, including Purdue Pharma. That statement that, that this delayed absorption would reduce the uh, addictive propensities of the drug was the centerpiece of the marketing campaign. A marketing campaign that convinced doctors to prescribe a lot of OxyContin. By 2001, it was the most prescribed name-brand narcotic medication for moderate to severe pain. It has also earned another distinction, one of the most abused prescription drugs in U.S. history. So how did that sentence make its way into an FDA-approved label? Paul Hanley thinks he has a good idea. The internal documents uh, of Purdue Pharma, which we have reviewed over a very long period of time, make quite clear that uh, the inclusion of this sort of language in the label was entirely the uh, brainchild of the marketing department and not of the medical department. The brainchild of the marketing department and not the medical department. We haven't seen Paul Hanley's documents. Many of them have been sealed in multiple court cases. But we did find court documents from earlier cases. Some have never before been made public, as far as we can tell. You can read them on our website. There are focus group reports, internal Purdue memos, depositions, documents that help explain how that sentence and other questionable sentences got into the label, and how that sentence in the label fueled a misleading marketing campaign that arguably helped open the floodgates of the opioid epidemic almost 20 years ago. After the break, we dig into those documents. And a young man from the mountains of Virginia figures out in one afternoon just how abusable OxyContin can be. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. 
And now Caitlin picks back up her story about Purdue Pharma and that FDA-approved label. And particularly that sentence. Delayed absorption, as provided by Oxycontin tablets, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. If there's anyone who understands the ridiculousness of the suggestion that Oxycontin is a less abusable drug, it's Joey Ballard. I first meet Joey on his 42nd day off pain pills in Johnson City, Tennessee. Joey doesn't want me to come to his house. Instead, he asks me to meet him in the parking lot of a discount tobacco store nearby. He texts me a picture of his face so I'll recognize him. Light brown hair, scruffy beard, black-rimmed glasses, white t-shirt. It's early on a Sunday morning, and there's no one around. As I pull in, he's standing beside a black car. Then the car peels out. Strange, I think. Joey had said he didn't have a car and that he was walking. But maybe someone gave him a ride? I decide not to pry. Good morning. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm tired. Then we head to a park. Joey takes out a pack of Marlboros. It's the one thing I splurge on. Like, I don't, I don't smoke cheap cigarettes. <laughs> Thank God. Joey grew up in Wise County, Virginia, one county over from where Sister Beth works as an addiction counselor. Wise is a lot like Lee County. The poverty rate is well above the national average at 23%. The main industries are healthcare, retail, and mining. And it was one of the first places to witness the fallout of OxyContin. In a six-year span, soon after OxyContin hit the market, drug overdose deaths in the region increased 300%. Joey had recently left Wise. Leaving was the only way he could get clean. He refers to his hometown as... A speck on the map. <laughs> what did kids do on the weekends or after school? Right around Walmart. <laughs> That's about it. That or go get high. I mean, that's it. There's nothing else there to do. It just wasn't. Joey says by 2001, when he was graduating from high school, pain pills were everywhere. He says he tried them a few times, but mostly preferred to smoke pot. And then I met a girl whose stepdad was an Oxycontin dealer. I ended up marrying her. She was from Lee County. Joey remembers this one moment in particular with his new father-in-law. He did give us an, a couple 80s for our wedding so that was, that was nice of him. Wait, our, what? Our wedding gift was was pills from him. <laughs> no joke. He gave me three or four 40s and like two 80s and a couple hundred bucks is what he gave us for our wedding. 40s and 80s refers to the milligram strength of an OxyContin pill. It took Joey just one afternoon to learn something it took scientists and doctors and lab coats years to acknowledge. OxyContin was not less abusable. Do you remember the first time you tried it? Yeah. What was that like? <laughs> uh, I got sick, as can be. Like, we had, uh, it was a 40 milligram, I think. And we split it. And we went to a place called the Rooster's Pub, which is in Pennington. And we'd ordered food, and I was fine. And I got, I mean, I was unbelievably high, like the highest I'd ever felt off of a pain pill and went outside because I got hot and I ended up throwing up and it was I mean it was just it blew my mind like it was such a good high and it's funny though you would think oh well this is going to make me throw up let's not take it <laughs> common sense I bet probably the first 10 or 15 times I took oxy or snorted oxy I threw up every time it wasn't long before pain pills took over Joey's life. He went from splitting 40 milligrams of OxyContin a few times a week to snorting 80 milligrams a day. Like, I've explained it to people, like, I could literally be driving to pay a bill and have no money but be out of drugs and get a call from somebody that says, hey, I've got whatever. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, I really need to go pay the water bill. <laughs> Before I know it, I'm at my dealer's house buying drugs instead. He kept crushing and snorting a mix of pain pills with his friends. He remembers this one guy in particular, a friend of his wife's. We had just hung out with him. We dropped him off at uh, his friend's house. We left. And then the next morning, uh, she got a phone call. And he died. He was like 20, 21. Like right around my age. Had just had uh, one baby and had another one on the way. What, I mean, was that like a major warning to you or did it just seem like? It just seemed like a regular day. 
as sad as that is. And, like, it makes you sound cold-hearted in a way, but, like, it was just, it got so regular there for a while. It's like, all right. So did you continue to do Oxycontin after that? Mm-hmm. We did an Oxy <laughs> that morning before we went to his funeral. Fourteen years of Joey's life went by this way. He did manage to get clean a few times, but it didn't stick. And then one morning, Joey decided no more pain pills, and he began the slow, careful, and incredibly difficult process of weaning himself off of opioids. You just kind of kind of finally wake up and go, what the fuck happened? <laughs> you know, 30, 34 years old. Where the fuck did my life go? Ask Joey if he ever thinks about the pharmaceutical companies and the regulators and whether they bear any responsibility for what happened to him and what happened to places like Wise. Yeah, I mean, of course so, because, you know, they're the ones that made the drug. They, they knew, you know, before the FDA um, approves anything, I mean, there's studies done. I mean, they do human studies to find out the side effects of it. They knew it was addictive before they put it out. They had to. There's no way they, they didn't. But as we know, those studies to test OxyContin's abuse potential were never done. Even though in 1993, almost three years before OxyContin hit the market, a toxicologist with the FDA told Purdue she wanted abuse studies. She also wanted Purdue to grind up OxyContin and inject it into animals to test what happens when the drug is abused. We know from the confidential minutes that we obtained of a meeting between Purdue and FDA officials that Purdue said it did not understand why a study was necessary. OxyContin contains oxycodone, which is already a controlled substance subject to DEA regulations. And according to the meeting minutes, the FDA medical reviewer in the room, a man named Curtis Wright, he agreed. Those meeting minutes are just a few pieces of paper out of hundreds that we found in a West Virginia County courthouse not far from where Joey Ballard lives. The documents I found give us a glimpse into the rarely seen inner workings of a drug company in the FDA, a regulator that is supposed to protect public health before all else. A judge gave me permission to come dig through three large boxes from a lawsuit that the state brought against Purdue in 2001. At this point, OxyContin had been on the market more than five years. The lawsuit was settled in 2004 for just $10 million. It was one of a spate of lawsuits in the early 2000s that alleged Purdue had engaged in improper marketing practices. Some of those lawsuits were thrown out, others settled. Purdue had deep pockets and a team of big-name lawyers, including Rudy Giuliani, Eric Holder, and Mary Jo White. But things caught up to Purdue in 2007 when the company and three top executives pleaded guilty to criminal charges, charges that they illegally misbranded OxyContin in an effort to mislead and defraud doctors and patients. Purdue acknowledged that it falsely claimed OxyContin was less addictive, less subject to abuse and diversion, and less likely to cause withdrawal symptoms than other pain medications, all in an effort to maximize its profits. The company and top executives paid a total of about $630 million in fines and other payments. In all of these lawsuits, the most revealing documents were sealed. The public never got to see much of what the charges were based on. But Marketplace obtained documents that help explain what happened and how the FDA let that sentence into the label. That sentence again? Delayed absorption, as provided by OxyContin tablets, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. I found most of these documents in the McDowell County Courthouse in the tiny town of Welch, West Virginia. After two days in the archival room of the courthouse, I emerged with some paper cuts and a whole lot of paper. Documents that tell the story of how the sentence got into the FDA-approved label and how Purdue used that sentence to aggressively and misleadingly market OxyContin and help open the floodgates to the opioid epidemic. After the break, Caitlin shows us a cart full of documents that she found at the courthouse.
One of my favorite reporters, Sarah Cliff, has a new podcast out from Vox. It's called The Impact, and it's all about what happens to laws and policies out in the real world, how the decisions made by people in power affect our lives. The first season focuses on healthcare and the challenges so many of us face in the American healthcare system. There's this great story about a $629 charge for a single band aid. There's one about why in the world in 2017 the fax machine is still such a big part of American medicine. And there are more serious stories, like one about deadly infections and the hospital policies that can actually prevent them. This podcast will change the way you think about healthcare. If you love the uncertain hour, I know you'll love the impact. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app and tell them we sent you. So before the break, Caitlin was telling us about how she found rarely seen documents that tell the story of how that sentence about belief and abuse potential got into the original OxyContin label and how it helped open the floodgates to the opioid epidemic. (laughs) Caitlin, you are wheeling in a cart right now. So the, so you have a lot of documents in there, like two feet worth of documents in there. Yes. And I would like to talk to you about all of these documents, but I'm going to start with one, this document. It's one that very few people have ever laid eyes on. It was sealed by a court until very recently. This took months of... Took a long time to find. ...trying to find and is kind of amazing that we are looking at it right now. I'm very excited to be holding this in my hands. It's a focus group report that Purdue commissioned in 1995. Okay. It's a focus group report. And the story I'm telling you starts with this focus group report. It's a seminal document. Here, you can take a look. Okay, so I'm looking at this. It says, Focus Group and Research Findings... OxyContin for non-cancer pain management. So this is market research. It's qualitative research. It's an in-depth study with a small group of people. And in this case, it's about 40 doctors from three different states. And it's not unusual for companies to test out their products on target audiences. I mean, companies do this all the time. And that's what Purdue was doing in March of 1995. They were testing out the attractiveness of their new product, OxyContin, on a couple dozen doctors. So I'm thinking of like Mad Men and, you know, when they would take a product and get consumers and they'd be like, what do you think of this? So this is like that, but for a drug. And it's about how doctors feel about the drug. Right. And these were rheumatologists, surgeons and family doctors. So the kinds of doctors who might see patients other than cancer patients, patients with untreated pain, moderate, possibly chronic pain from conditions like arthritis or pain after surgery, that kind of thing. And this is interesting because, as we've talked about, in the 1990s, there was this movement to treat pain as a fifth vital sign, and opioids were really starting to lose their stigma. So Purdue is testing the waters here. They want to see how receptive doctors will be to this new drug, how likely they'll be to prescribe it for a broader set of patients than in the past. Maybe Purdue sees this as an untapped market and the opportunity to make a lot of money. Maybe Purdue just recognizes there are a lot of patients out there with untreated pain. But either way, this focus group is looking outside of the cancer bucket. Right. And so what was the upshot of the focus group? Like, what were their recommendations to Purdue? The focus group report makes it clear that doctors were resistant to the idea of prescribing OxyContin for moderate pain. And that's mainly because they were worried about a couple of things, abuse, addiction, and side effects. Uh, There were multiple recommendations. Stick to severe pain only because none of the doctors in the focus group said they would prescribe a narcotic as strong as OxyContin for moderate pain. And then there's another recommendation. If you could prove this drug had a lower abuse liability, meaning that it's less likely to be abused, if you could prove that, that would help convince doctors to prescribe it for non-cancer pain. I'm just going to read the whole recommendation. It's really short. Finally, we recommend that Purdue implement clinicals with OxyContin among non-cancer patients to determine if there might be any reductions in the side effects that one might get when compared with combination opioids. And 
clinicals are tests, right? So right. the focus group is saying do tests. Yes, do tests. And then the very next sentence goes on to say, if this type of information were developed, it could be a dramatic finding that has the potential to dramatically impact on the long-term sales volume of OxyContin for treatment of non-cancer pain. If the product was proven to have a lower abuse potential than IR, that's immediate release, oxycodone, it would improve the likelihood of usage for non-cancer pain. So just translate that into English for me. Yeah. So if you can show that this drug has a lower abuse liability, meaning it's less likely to be abused, that'll help sell it. (laughs) Especially that'll help convince doctors to prescribe this drug to patients with pain who don't have cancer. To this untapped market. Exactly. Right. Because otherwise it just seems like doctors are going to be too worried about the consequences, the side effects. Yeah. This is reminiscent of what that FDA toxicologist wanted in 1993. She wanted to test how abusable OxyContin was, and Purdue said, no, we don't need to, and the FDA agreed. And then this is the cover page that accompanies the focus group report. You can Uh, see there's some scribbling. Yes, there's lots of scribbling. There's all these, like, initials with arrows pointing Right. There's an RK to RR to PG to EI. And these are all important people at Purdue. And this is a paper trail. It shows where the report went. It went from one office to the next office to the next office to the next office. So we know that officials at Purdue saw this document. And on the cover page, you can see the names listed here. These are people who work both in the marketing department and in the medical department. Huh. So the medical department saw this market research. It was not just the marketing department. Right. And... I know it's pretty typical for drug companies to go back and forth with the FDA a bunch of times when they're hammering out a label. Every sentence is negotiated. But so how did this focus group report from 1995 figure into that process that was happening between Purdue and FDA? And particularly, how did the writing of that one sentence we've been focusing on about abuse liability, how did that fit into the focus group. So we have draft labels from before and after the focus group report. These documents, by the way, are considered confidential by the FDA, but we got a hold of two of them. A draft label from before the focus group report does not have the sentence. Huh. And then the focus group happens. And then the focus group happens. And then a draft label after the focus group, you can see here in the changes, the track changes, that the sentence has been added. Wow. So the focus group happens, and then the sentence happens. And remind me of the sentence again. Delayed absorption, as provided by OxyContin tablets, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. You have it memorized. (laughs) I do. (laughs) And it strikes me that that sentence sounds really familiar. Like, that's really similar to exactly what the focus group report was recommending. Yeah, that's a really important point because the language does sound really similar. So do we know who wrote this sentence? Well, in another court case that uses a lot of these same documents, plaintiffs' lawyers argue that the idea for some statement about delayed absorption, reducing abuse potential, came from Purdue. Uh, Over the course of multiple depositions or sworn testimony, a Purdue official named Robert Reeder says he thinks the suggestion came from the FDA, even though he does acknowledge that it appeared in a draft that Purdue sent to the FDA, so it's unclear. There's a sworn deposition with FDA medical officer Curtis Wright. Wait, who's that guy again? I remember his name. Right. He's the medical review officer who worked on the OxyContin approval process. He testified that he doesn't know who suggested the sentence. He doesn't remember. But he does say, quote, the label makes an extremely weak statement about a class of drugs, end quote. Curtis Wright later went on to work at Purdue. Huh. And I should add, Curtis Wright and Robert Reeder both declined to comment. Uh, There's another document I want to show you, and it helps explain just how important the sentence became to Purdue and the way they sold OxyContin. Here's a memo. It's an internal training memo from Purdue. Here you go. You can have it. Okay, so the first thing that strikes me about the headline, if I only had a brain, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Then it starts talking about the Wizard of Oz. Can I read it? Mm Mm-hmm. In the Wizard of Oz, so this, first of all, this is not what I would have expected just to be coming out of pharmaceutical company literature of any sort. 
especially one about opioids. In The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy has a clear-cut objective. She knew exactly what she wanted to get back home to Kansas. Who could help her? Only one person could give her what she wanted. The wizard. <laughs> According to the munchkins, they're, <laughs> they're quoting munchkins, okay? <laughs> According to the munchkins, the right approach, how to accomplish this task, was to take the yellow brick road. Okay, before we go any further, I am so confused by all of this. What is the Wizard of Oz doing here? What does it have to do with selling OxyContin? You have to give me some context for this, Caitlin. So Purdue was using the story of the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy's journey to the Emerald City, et cetera, et cetera, as a metaphor to help inspire drug reps about how they should be approaching their sales pitches to doctors when they're trying to sell OxyContin. Oh, okay. Do you want to keep reading? Okay. Yes. Now we have Toto. So Toto eventually grabbed the wizard's attention, that's like the doctor's attention, by pulling down his curtain. Then Dorothy knew that she had to ask for what she wanted. As doctors' scheduling demands are getting tighter, you need to more effectively plan your presentations. And then they have, I guess, what looks like a script that they're suggesting drug reps use on doctors. And it goes, according to the FDA, stated in the OxyContin package insert, quote, delayed absorption as provided by OxyContin tablets is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. I recognize that sentence. It's interesting because, I mean, that's how regulated sales reps and drug reps are. They're not supposed to go outside of what's in the package insert. So quoting from it is not a strange and meticulous nitpicky thing. It's right. it's common. Right. So a drug rep would know the package insert pretty well right. and be able to point to the parts of it that address a doctor's concerns. Right. And so that sentence really became a sentence that drug reps could point to and say, look, we know you're worried about abuse and addiction. We know that these drugs, you know, are are very strong. But but delayed absorption, as provided by OxyContin, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. So like those Percocets and those other drugs that are immediate release, those are the ones you need to be worried about. Not this. Yeah. And look, it's right on the label. Right. And it and according to the FDA. Right. According to the FDA. Even though it's possible that Purdue is the one that wrote it. Can I, though, just take a moment to relish the irony or something of this whole marketing document? Yes. Let's relish the irony. <laughs> so I don't know why they chose The Wizard of Oz, but it is just funny because, right, Dorothy... Like, the, one of my biggest memories of that movie is when she falls asleep in a field of poppies, which is a kind of opiate, right? Like, And then she... Yeah, the Wicked Witch poppies. Poppies will put them to sleep. God, that kind of gives me weird, like literally chills when I'm listening to that right now. Because here you have the Wicked Witch talking about putting people to sleep and Dorothy going into this drug-induced stupor. In a way, that is what happened to so many people who got hooked on opioids. And so aside from being weird and uncomfortable, this document is really important and revealing because, as we were just talking about, it shows how Purdue was using that sentence in the label to sell OxyContin to doctors. And you can see just how lucrative Purdue was hoping that effort would be if you go to the end of the training document. Here, you can take a look at the very last sentence. It's on the third page. Okay. Back to the Wizard of Oz metaphor. A pot of gold awaits you over the rainbow. Pot of gold, like they're going to make a lot of money? Yeah, bonuses. So in this training document where they're telling sales reps like how to sell OxyContin, they make specific reference to the sentence, to the sentence we've been talking about. Point to that sentence in the package insert, in the label, 
when you're talking to doctors to help reassure them. Yeah. And I took this document to Dr. Caleb Alexander from Johns Hopkins to get his take on all of this. What's really stunning about it is the ways that it reflects how OxyContin was promoted through messaging that it may be less addictive and have a lower abuse potential than alternative opioids. And it matters what a drug rep says about a product. Studies have shown detailing, as it's called, does influence a doctor's prescribing habits. Drug reps visit other gatekeepers, too, like pharmacists. Greg Stewart, the pharmacist from southwest Virginia, one county over from where Joey Ballard grew up, he says it's not uncommon for drug reps to come and try to convince him to stalk a drug. The drug reps were quite effective in, in trying to push the product. He recalls several tense exchanges with his local drug rep. She got so much pushback from us, uh, and I think she knew that whenever she came in, she was going to get an argument or disagreement uh, based on what the, uh, how they were detailing the medication. Around this time, a teenager came in with a sprained knee in a prescription for OxyContin. And Stewart actually began refusing to fill prescriptions from a certain doctor that he suspected of running a pill mill. Once, Stewart says a regional rep came to confront him about it. The rep told Stewart it was his moral responsibility to fill every prescription for OxyContin. And to me, that simply showed his own ignorance. Um, You don't fill everything that comes through the door. These kinds of visits were not limited to Greg Stewart's pharmacy. It was widespread and intentional. In 2003, the DEA described Purdue's marketing campaign as aggressive, inappropriate, and unprecedented. Purdue spent a lot of money promoting OxyContin. All expense-paid medical conferences at resorts for doctors. OxyContin swag, like fishing hats and stuffed animals, pedometers, and coffee mugs with heat-activated messages. To date, Purdue has made more than $35 billion off of OxyContin. And the FDA, the agency that is supposed to be regulating marketing and branding, they eventually noticed something was wrong, too. Which brings us to this last document. This one's from April 23, 2001. That's five and a half years after OxyContin hit the market. And Chrissy, these are confidential minutes of a meeting that took place between the FDA and Purdue. Okay. And... So the cover page of this document has this long list of everybody who was in attendance, all these officials at the FDA and Purdue, the VP of U.S. Regulatory Affairs, the director of U.S. Regulatory Affairs. And then on the FDA side, we have division directors and regulatory review officers. I'll just read this first paragraph of the meeting minutes. Following introductions, Dr. McCormick, who is from the FDA, she stated that the agency is taking the recent upsurge of prescription drug abuse and specifically OxyContin abuse and diversion very seriously. Purdue opened by stating that they have a two-decade history of responsible marketing of opioids, but recognize that OxyContin has become a problem. So they're here in this room together, both say, like, this is a moment of reckoning, of like, whoa. It's two giants coming together, recognizing this is a problem, and how are we going to fix it? Yeah. And then, it's interesting, at the end, Purdue says... They have and are willing to address issues regarding labeling, promotion, and other things. They also stress the importance that the discussion remains confidential. You can see in the minutes that a doctor with the FDA brings up some numbers. Here's what it says in the third paragraph. Quote, There has been a shift in primary prescriber type for OxyContin from 1995 to 2000 from oncologists to family practitioners. So they got out of the cancer bucket. They're out of the cancer bucket. And then here's another interesting sentence. The number of OxyContin prescriptions has increased tenfold, and its prescriptions for musculoskeletal disease has increased 20-fold. Wow. And yeah, I mean, to me, this suggests that Purdue's marketing campaign is working, and it reminds me of that focus group report. If you want to expand the market, it would be great advantage to show it's less abusable. So... Later in these minutes, the FDA makes it clear that they want a major overhaul of the label, and Purdue agrees to make changes. But then Purdue makes it clear that they're worried about 
other drug companies getting a competitive advantage. And you can see on page four, it says, Purdue said they were having a difficult time understanding how abuse of OxyContin differs from abuse from other Schedule II drugs. And what's a Schedule II drug? Oh, um, it's a drug that has a high potential for abuse uh, that may lead to severe psychological or physical dependence. That's according to the DEA. So these are like some of the most restricted drugs. Yeah. Okay. Quote, They are concerned that they may create the perception that this drug is different. They would like to concur with the agency's request if the agency will request the same of other companies. So they're saying, why why are we getting treated differently? Yeah. What would the FDA say to that? So, yeah, I mean, the FDA responds, if other drugs are a problem, then we'll deal with them. But right now, your drug is the problem, so we're dealing with your drug. And one of the problems with your drug is the label. Right. And that's something that the FDA has direct control over so they can request changes. Right. Uh, And there were several of these meetings between the FDA and Purdue in 2001. And as a result, the FDA approves a new label for OxyContin. Mm -hmm. And there's a black box warning, which is the strictest warning a drug can have. And that sentence, that delayed absorption as provided by OxyContin tablets is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug, that sentence disappears from the label. Wow. So they've, like, the pendulum has swung really far to the other side. They're saying you have to take out the sentence and you have to put in this strict black box warning. Well, I think the pendulum has sort of swung midway at this point, because if you look at today's label, it's even more extreme in terms of warning than what they were proposing in in these meetings. The 2016 label is much stronger. And You know, right front and center, there are words in the black box warning. Um, It says OxyContin exposes users of risks to addiction, abuse and misuse, which can lead to overdose and death. Much stronger language. And then this is really interesting. If you open to the drug abuse and dependence section, which is the same section that the abuse liability statement was right. in, in, you know, in, from 1995 to 2001, if you go to that section of today's label, and I will just let you read this. Okay. Quote, the high drug content in extended release formulations adds to the risk of adverse outcomes from abuse and misuse. Wow. Yeah. So now the pendulum has really swung to the other side. Right. But it took them a really long time to get to this point. I mean, the sentence was there for five years, starting in 1995, and then it was taken out in 2001. But by then, you could argue that the horse was already out of the barn. Even in 2001, you know, the alarm had already sounded about this stuff. That's Dr. Caleb Alexander. And since this time, the problem has only progressively gotten worse and worse and worse and worse, year over year over year over year. So it's just remarkable. One of the questions I'm still left with after all this is why didn't Purdue just do these abuse studies early on, if people were saying, we think you should do these studies, was it because the company really didn't think it was necessary? Or was Purdue worried about what the studies might show? About 100 states, cities, and counties are currently suing Purdue, along with other opioid makers and distributors, over their role in the opioid crisis. Purdue declined an interview about this story. Purdue spokesperson Robert Josephson did provide a statement. In response to our question about why Purdue did not do any clinical studies to back up the delayed absorption sentence, he wrote, quote, The delayed absorption sentence was added to the label at FDA's suggestion, not Purdue Pharma's. And FDA did not require Purdue to do any clinical studies to back up the delayed absorption statement, end quote. And then he wrote that the delayed absorption statement was, quote, supported by other scientific research, end quote. The spokesperson forwarded a few studies from the early 1990s that he says showed abusers preferred faster-acting drugs over ones with delayed absorption. None of the studies were about OxyContin. Purdue spokesperson also wrote that, quote, the March 1995 focus group report did not influence the writing of the sentence, end quote. 
The statement continues, Purdue has always sold OxyContin with approval from FDA that the medicine is safe and effective. It is wrong to believe that because FDA approved changes to the label for OxyContin subsequent to its original approval in 1995, including the 2001 label changes, the medication was not previously safe and effective. Labels for drugs are routinely changed over the years as additional information is collected, end quote. You can read the full response from Purdue on our website, marketplace.org. The FDA also declined to give an interview. A spokesperson did provide a statement. Again, you can read the entire thing on our website, where you'll also find a link to all the other steps the FDA has taken over the years to fight the opioid epidemic. The statement explains that the FDA continues to evaluate opioid labels, including OxyContins, to make sure they include essential information about abuse and addiction, and the FDA will revise those labels as necessary. And then I'll just read a little bit from this next part. Quote, The public health crisis of opioid addiction and overdose is a tragic situation that has evolved over a number of years and has been the result of a confluence of factors. However, the agency is focused on making sure to learn from the lessons of the past to inform the actions we take moving forward, including a shift in the agency's policy efforts to consider how opioids are used not just by appropriate patients, but also by people who are using them for non-medical reasons and identifying creative solutions within the FDA's authority to address the epidemic, end quote. About the specific 1995 OxyContin label, the FDA had this to say. Quote, at the time of approval, FDA believed the controlled release formulation of OxyContin would result in less abuse potential since the drug would be absorbed slowly and there would not be an immediate rush or high that would promote abuse. And then the statement continues, quote, there was no evidence to suggest at the time that crushing the controlled release capsule followed by oral ingestion or snorting would become widespread and lead to high levels of abuse, end quote. In the mountains of Virginia, it has been about 20 years since OxyContin first showed up in the street. Well, here we're dealing with all, when you have like, it's like like a war zone, you know, and you have to deal with all you pick up afterwards. We're still dealing with it. That's Sister Beth Davies, the addiction counselor from Lee County. So many of the very people who were, as I said to you, who were addicted from the beginning are still addicted today. So you're dealing with all of that, with all the family problems, with all of the, you know, at our school, for example, in St. Charles, um, m- most of those children are being raised by their grandparents because their parents are addicted and can't keep the children. Last I spoke to him, Joey Ballard had not returned to his hometown Wise, right next door to Sister Beth Davies. He was still living with his mother in Johnson City, Tennessee. The only person I had left was my mom, and she still don't trust me. <laughs> Remember that black car that was trailing Joey in the parking lot of the discount tobacco store? I'm being straight honest. Like, when I came to meet you, that's who was there because she wanted to make sure I wasn't buying drugs. That was your mom? Mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of great you have that, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is. But, like, she's on my ass all the time, (laughs) which is good. You know, I mean, I need somebody there. But also, you know, I'm a 34-year-old grown man. Um, So having your mom tell you what to do at 34 years old is kind of hard. But if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be where I'm at. That's for sure. I mean, that's like the one person who, while she may not like me and may not trust me, she still loves me. When we spoke, Joey said he had been off pain pills for six months. He'd lost one job, but then found another at a collection agency call center. He'd bought a car and met a new girlfriend. Recovery still felt so new to Joey that he wouldn't say what his hopes are for the future out loud. He was focused on waking up every day and deciding not to take a pain pill. And like, that's what scares me is I'm afraid one day something's going to happen and I'm not going to be able to say no. And that scares the living shit out of me. It really does. Joey, we're wishing you well.
That's it for this episode of The Uncertain Hour. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks with more stories about the things we fight a lot about, but know just a little about. And I should say, a lot of the documents that Caitlin dug up in our investigation are posted on our website. If you want to see them for yourselves, you can go to uncertainhour.org. This episode of The Uncertain Hour was produced by Caitlin Esch, Maria Hollenhorst, Lyra Smith, Tommy Andres, Tony Wagner, and Donna Tam. Engineering by Daniel Ramirez and Jake Gorski. The episode was edited by senior editor Nancy Fargali and me, Chrissy Clark. Sitara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. And if you want to dive even deeper into the history of the opioid epidemic, we recommend a book by Barry Meyer called Painkiller. It helped us understand those early years when OxyContin hit the market. Please let us know what you think of our show. Our Twitter account is at UncertainHour. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us continue the work we do. The Uncertain Hour is produced by Marketplace, a nonprofit news organization. Part of our funding comes from listeners like you who believe that the stories we tell and how we tell them are important. Thanks to everyone who donates to help make this kind of reporting possible. Visit uncertainhour.org if you'd like to know more. <laughs>